Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I was 18 years old, a privileged math prodigy with two graduate degrees. Having leapfrogged my adolescence, I imagined life ahead as an undulating Fibonacci sequence in ever-expanding perfect proportion. My stride and new black Oxfords matched the subliminal subterranean rhythm. I wore a business suit tailored by a Parisian man on Greenwich Street, a white dress shirt, and a green and blue silk tie of interlocking ellipses. Lena, one of my mentors and lovers at Harvard, had given me the tie. Martha, who didn't know about Lena, had given me the silver cufflinks shaped like infinity symbols. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to K.C. Maher, author of The Best of Crimes. In this unusual story about the fine line between right and wrong, Myris created a unique voice. Walter is a gifted protagonist who only wants to do the right thing, but is torn between doing the best thing or doing the right thing for a child. Hi, Kathleen. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. I'm honored that you invited me into your podcast. So first... What led you to write this really interesting story? Uh, It started, actually, as serial fiction on a blog that I started in, I think, 2006 to cure me of um, perfectionism. And for a while, it worked. My plots were stronger. The characters were not as well-developed. And this started as a story about the Wall Street crash and Walter, that was the story. As the girls grew and the uh, Sterling left him, I took it offline because I felt that Walter and Amanda already shared a certain affinity He knew not to, when he invited her to lunch that first Sunday, he was, he regretted it immediately, but didn't feel he could take it back. Wow. So these are all new characters nobody knows anything about. So let's unravel. Let's unpack this all. The book opens with Walter turning himself in because he's done something illegal but he has to argue with the police. They don't want to arrest him. Is turning himself in the right thing to do? That's an interesting question. And it's one that is explored much more thoroughly in the sequel. Um, <clears throat> Walter has seen all these bankers cut, get away with all kinds of crimes and feels somewhat responsible. He helped create the products they were selling, the little tiny bits, the derivatives, the little tiny bits of 
mortgages and uh, he feels naively he's had very little experience outside of academics and Wall Street. He does not assume that everyone will assume that taking her to Disneyland involved a sexual crime. He's willing to do and, and feels it's his duty to do, do the time for taking her across state lines, kidna- second degree kidnapping. Let's just clarify. This is a 13 year old girl that he mm. is. Yes. We'll talk about, we'll talk more about her. Okay. So all along, Walter struggles with what's the right thing to do. He's earned two doctorates by the time he's 18. Did you imagine him as not having had time to learn about morality? I think that in some people, morality is an innate trait. But when his sister Emily dies, when he's 11, which is when he begins to just race through adolescence, race through academics, to escape loneliness, but that's when his moral sensibility developed. And it was encouraged during his education, but not by his parents. Uh, But I I see him as someone who was born with a a great discipline and a great, a, a very urgent, need to be good and to discriminate between good and evil and recognize that there are exceptions to every rule, which is something he does know as a mathematician. Mm -hmm. That's pretty important. How did you decide to make parenting and the lack of parenting such a big theme in your novel? I think it's a very big thing around the world. I think so it's, it was Walter's parents and then Walter and Sterling, how they raised their daughter. Yes. And then the neighbor. Yes. Now, I would like to say, because some people don't believe that there are such needy children in one of the uh, wealthy suburbs outside of New York City. I raised two children in a suburb that was a little bit less wealthy. There used to be a GM plant there and the street we lived on, all the families had belonged, had worked at GM for generations and the plant closed by the time my children started school. They coped, uh, but to sort of integrate this, this one little school this one, one street farther north was incorporated into a very fine school district. So um, did you intend for Walter's marriage at age 19 to a woman at least a decade older than him to already be morally questionable? No. I, well, actually, in hindsight... I, because I know Walter's whole life. I just didn't put it in the book. In hindsight, I would say, uh, yes. However, 
I don't write about characters. I don't admire um, some level. Sterling is certainly more flawed than some of the other characters. Sterling is Walter's wife and mother to his daughter. And she's really not such a bad mother. Uh, She has insights into the girls. She has insights into Walter. She's very proper. She's grew up in Maine, so she has a, a certain restraint. She withholds herself. And she does, having worked on Wall Street, want the same things that the people around her have. Um, that may not be admirable in and of itself. I don't consider it evil. It's not a big thing with me, but I can understand how someone who works very hard and sees a lot of people whom she's helping succeed uh, want some of that for herself. And she does. And Walter presents her with an opportunity. And at 18, he very much wants to marry Sterling, who knows more about the world than he does. Mm-hmm. But she's a really difficult woman. It's not the the grasping and wanting everything and the bigger house and the decoration, et cetera. That, it's, that's not the problem. It's when she picks up and leaves him and says, the marriage isn't over. I just need to, uh, I need a break. And she goes off with this man, moves away, yes. takes his child, takes Walter's daughter, their daughter. That's difficult. Well, Again, (laughs) it's not admirable, but she is human. And, you know, one of the things, one of the, one of the things I believe is that a few women are prepared for motherhood and the degree of the sacrifice it's going to involve. But what I ended up cutting out of the book to keep the pace going was that Sterling is, she's the one who's present. She's the one who's home. She does know the girls. She cares, her daughter's Olivia, and she cares about the neglected girl across the street, Amanda, the same as Walter does up until those girls are on the brink of adolescence. And I think no one's a perfect mother, and often mothers and daughters uh, between 13, 14, or 15 don't get along. And that actually is an indication the mother has done her job, that the girl feels strong enough to have very different opinions. Um, They might not be wise. The mother may need to say, sorry, you can't do that. The mother needs to be there. Someone that loves this person needs to be there at least for a few hours every day. Wait, so you're not talking about um, the neighbor, Amanda's mother. No. Because her behavior is morally reprehensible. Yes, yes. She is the closest thing. She's a villain. She is. Um, Mm -hmm. But she, too had no idea what motherhood required. 
and she is selfish and she is jealous of Amanda and she sees that Amanda can cope and that for her, that should be good enough. Yeah. No, she's, I, I'm not, this, she is pretty close to a villain. Um, but again, our culture or the world, our culture, I think now fewer women are having children in my generation. <clears throat> you didn't need to, but most women who are heterosexual who got married or didn't at some point tended to have a child hmm. if they could. And if they hmm. couldn't often that was very traumatic. Yeah. Let's discuss how Walter doesn't talk as much about the loss of his parents as he does about the loss after 9-11, of Jimmy Quinn, his yes. best friend of one year. I know. Uh, his parents weren't really around very much. It was his sister who took care of him. And with Jimmy Quinn, that's when, after uh, growing up as fast as he could and focusing entirely on academic and in the opening, when he's walking to work, it's just so mentioned that he had women lovers at Harvard who were his mentors. He had one advisor who was a man, um, but he too, uh, not too, because it doesn't happen in this book to the girl, um, but he was, he must have been six. I, I The exact way that occurred and, how that happened would be a different story. But oh it my did. goodness, I didn't even think of that, but you're right. Yes. His advisor sort of groomed him. Yes. Wow. Interesting. Yes, they're parallel. There's a reason why they get each other. So that brings me to a question I've had for you. Why are some unconventional relationships so much creepier than others? So Maybe here would be a good time. What is, what is your take on reviewers who have connected Best of Crimes, your book, yes. to Lolita by Nabokov? Okay. Uh, I fought very hard not to have it be compared to Lolita, which I had read many decades ago and thought was brilliant. But the publishing the press pretty much overruled me and it was presented on NetGalley as hashtag Lolita. And even my family, when they read it said, no, you can't escape Lolita. However, I happen to know my sisters, for example, they know what Lolita signifies, but they didn't read Lolita. My mother did. And my mother said, you can't blame anyone for assuming that. I still, it happened so much and was so painful for me when the book opened, when the book debuted in England, that 
over the summer, I did read, reread Lolita. And it's not just hashtag male predator. Yes, the man is very sick. He goes to sanatoriums. There's a lot of icky and immoral activity. The girl does not protest. She goes along with it. That doesn't mean that the man isn't culpable. She's a child. Uh, By the end of the book, the man is just destroyed with remorse. He weeps and weeps. And he's this elegant, educated, European, aristocratic emigre. And uh, I found the book tragic for everyone. And I also think, uh, as far as prose and composition, it's a marvel. It's fabulous. But it really, he is not anything like Walter. Walter struggles. He wants to do what's best for this poor, basically deserted young 12, 13-year-old who lives uh, almost alone, virtually alone. Uh, Part of the problem for Walter is that he has seen Amanda grow up She did have a nanny until she was seven or eight. He has seen her since she was three years old and seen her grow up. And they have always shared a kind of affinity, uh, you know, a pleasant one. Like they are happy to see each other. They understand each other. Uh, Both of Walter and his wife very much approve of their daughter's friendship with her because she does manage in this situation where she has to do things that privileged, wealthy adults never even have to consider. And she's nine years old. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how Walter became a father at age 20. I'm and not even sure he was 20. I think oh, before he turns 20, he becomes a father. He just adores baby Olivia. And he's he and Sterling are raising this beloved child. And then Amanda comes into their life. And it's just another child to love. Do you think of him, do you think of him as a wonderful father? No, he has faults. I, he's, a, yes, he's, he's wonderful in that, Olivia, he gives Olivia what he what he thinks she wants as long as it doesn't diminish her or uh, infringe upon what he thinks she needs. So that when he learns that she is happy staying with her grandmother, with whom the rapport between the two of those two was very obvious early on. He, he believes that for this period, he could go up there and insist she come back with him and it would make things easier for him, but not for her. Uh, because of the way his sister died mysteriously 
and his parents' rigor and strictness as far as what was appropriate and what wasn't, he does blame that. He does blame that kind of rigid, unyielding mindset for of his parents as contributing to his beloved sister's mysterious death. Mm -hmm. And that's just like a surface explanation. Part of it also is his personality, his innate nature. While he's rushed through and succeeded terrifically through academics, um, he is not comfortable telling other people what to do. He will tell children what to do in order to keep them safe, but he loses his job or gets fired on purpose because they have offered him a promotion to manage traders, which he knows he cannot do. And it would be the first time for this very young man that he's ever failed, ever. Uh, so he, I, I don't think of him as a bad father. He loves Olivia. He recognizes that he's too lenient towards her, which his wife tells him over and over again. Uh, everybody does the best they can. Nobody's perfect. And oftentimes parents and children aren't really the perfect match for each other. Okay, but they learn about Amanda's mother, Cheryl, who just is just not showing up. She's She leaves her with the babysitter and later leaves her alone for long periods of time in the house. Why doesn't her behavior raise red flags for any of her teachers? Okay. Why? And why don't either Walter or Sterling just report this? That is what is supposed to happen. There are there are mechanisms in every society for dealing with children who are falling through the cracks. Yes, but where I lived, when my children were growing up, those were not good mechanisms. And you did not want to send a child who is coping, however hard it is, to a group home which would be worse than, or or the same as an orphanage. The skills that she's developed would not help her survive in the kind of group homes that are provided for abandoned or abused children. That said, I would like to add that when I was raising my children, I had a boy and a girl three years apart in both of their classes at this excellent suburban school outside New York, there were two or three children who were raising themselves. Mm. In those cases, I need to say, there was no other option. The mother was working 14 hours a day. There was no father. In, at the end of my book, in the acknowledgments, I honor and praise everyone who grows up without a father, Mm. uh, which at this point, I think, is a significant number of children. 
Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Uh, When I was in that town, I would feel as if I was overstepping my bounds. I did give the children rides. I did, the teachers did match them up with projects knowing, and we were not, we were like among the, the low end of the, the people in there as far as income in that area. But they knew I would buy markers for both children or, or for three oh. children or that I was the one. And I think people who say this could never happen, uh, there are a lot of people who just don't see what they don't want to see. Yeah, that's life. Kathleen, why did you decide to write the book entirely from Walter's point of view? Okay. Uh, I think that's because it did start as serial fiction. It was much shorter but perhaps even more intense when it was condensed. And uh, it was originally in the third person, but my third person voice is just as intimate. It's just as close. You're just as deep in the head, uh, the character's head. And <laughs> this will sound silly, but it's the kind of thing I pay attention to because all my life I've been trying to get my work published. Uh, my impression was that before Celeste Ng's novel, um, <clears throat> where she does multiple third person and she's close inside their head and they're teenagers and adults and people in the past and she um. zips in and out of their point of view very deftly before that agents were saying, I would like this much better in the first person. Hmm. Putting it in the first person was not a matter of search and replace. I wrote and rewrote this novel nine or 10 times um, between uh, 2007 and 2017, 18. Ah, wow. So what are you working on now? The sequel. So you just said the sequel. Tell us about it. Well, the sequel is Amanda's story as an adult. Uh, It's, there is like, just as there's a flash forward, I'm trying very hard to make them not match up perfectly, but uh, the same sort of structure, just as there's a, a flash forward at the beginning of the best of crimes, the working title for this one is Not the Worst of Crimes. Oh, great one. Amanda uh, is an adult. She introduces herself. And then it's um, uh, like flash backward to the summer. She's going to take care of the twins. And Olivia is leaving. And they have a conversation. And Olivia says, I'm not coming back. I'm staying with my granny. Goodbye, Amanda. And then she goes and takes care of the twins, which is the best summer she's ever had because the maid makes the meals. The maid puts towels in her room. She's got a huge TV and an entertainment system, a swimming pool. Uh, 
And that occurs also in this novel, but that's just like a flash for a flashback. And then it starts again uh, when, when the, the first chapter starts. She's, she's an adult. She's an adult looking backwards at four different marriages. I, I look forward to it because I really did love some of the characters. I didn't like them all, but you didn't want us to like them all. Um, I hope we don't have to wait 10 years for the next one to come out. Me too. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Kathleen. Thank you, Colleen. It's really been a pleasure. And thank you for joining me again. This is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host of New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Casey Marr, author of The Best of Crimes. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join.